This morning we're going to be in Judges chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles as we continue our study of the book of Judges on the third and final week of our mini-series, if you will, on Gideon. So if you were with us last week, we learned in Judges chapter 7 that Gideon and his 300 men are finally able to defeat the Midianites, the tribe that he chose to come out and help him, started at 32,000 men, and God dwindles it down all the way to 300. The purpose for doing that is because God knew that Gideon and the soldiers would end up taking credit for that victory. So God continues to make that number smaller and smaller to ensure that he alone receives the glory for that victory. So this morning, we're going to be in Judges chapter 8, and unfortunately, we see Gideon spiraling into further sin as he ends his reign as judge. So Judges 8 does not end on a happy note. You're going to leave today depressed. But that's okay, because Jesus came in the New Testament. So you'll be just fine. But you need these hard stories to make you realize how important Jesus actually is. So we're going to be working our way through Judges 8 this morning, and you're going to notice four things as we work our way through this text. Number one, Gideon's diplomacy. Number two, Gideon's vengeance. Number three, Gideon as king. And then number four, the consequences of all of that for Israel. So number one, Gideon's diplomacy. Number two, his vengeance. Number three, Gideon as king. And then number four, the consequences for Israel as a result. The first three verses of chapter 8, those sometimes get lumped in to the end of chapter 7. But it makes a better launching point for our sermon today to group it into chapter 8, which is where it is. Because it shows us, the very beginning of this chapter, how good of a judge Gideon actually could be when he did the things that God told him to do. So what do we see happening in those three verses? We see the men of Ephraim complaining because they were not called out to fight against the Midianites in chapter 7, verse 23. So look back at verse 23 of chapter 7. It says this, And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, from Asher, and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. But you don't see Ephraim mentioned there, do you? So their complaint is, Why did you call all of these tribes and not call us? But their complaint is actually not really justified. Because we see in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7 that he did eventually call them to participate in defeating the Midianites. In fact, they are the ones who capture the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. So what's the issue? What are the Ephraimites upset about? Well, they were upset because they were not initially called to help in the defeat of the Midianites. They felt slighted. They felt like they were an afterthought, remembered after the fact. So what's Gideon going to do about this? Well, this is the highlight of Gideon in chapter 8, these verses right here. He responds very diplomatically. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8. And he, Gideon, said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? 
God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Now, verse 2 might not be that impressive to you, but what is Gideon doing here? He's boasting on behalf of the Ephraimites. He is saying to them that gleaning the grapes from your fields is better than a full harvest from my fields. Now, gleaning is the process through which, after the farmers came through and harvested all of the crops, the poor people could come through and pick up the leftovers. So Gideon is saying that the leftovers in Ephraim is better than a full harvest among my people. And in case they weren't satisfied with that, he goes on to remind them that God is the one who used them to capture the Midianite princess. So what is their response? They're satisfied. In fact, we're told in verse 3, then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So what's the point? Why does the author of Judges put these three verses in the beginning of chapter 8? What are we supposed to take away from that? Number one, Gideon could in fact display good leadership at times. He had a good side to the things that he did. But we also see the divisions and the fractions that are beginning to develop within the nation of Israel. It's becoming more and more common, and it's only going to get worse as we continue to work our way through this book. And this diplomatic exchange that we see here between Ephraim and between Gideon is the last good thing that Gideon does in the book of Genesis. So we move on now to number two, Gideon's vengeance. In verse four, we're told that Gideon takes his 300 men and he crosses the Jordan. The text tells us they're exhausted, but that they continue to pursue the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunia. Now here's how Gideon goes about doing this. He approaches the people of Sukkoth and he asks if they would be willing to provide bread for his soldiers who were exhausted. And their response is no. Gideon does not like to be told no, as we're going to find out in just a moment. Now, these people were probably fearful that if they said yes, and then Gideon is unsuccessful in defeating these kings, then the Midianites would come back and most likely destroy them. So the people of Sukkot say, no, Gideon, we're not going to help you. We're not going to feed your soldiers. So look at Gideon's response in verse 7. Not so diplomatic, by the way. So Gideon said, well then... When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunia into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Not a pretty sight, but here's the deal. It's important to point out here that what Gideon's doing is not God's judgment upon the people of Sukkoth. This is him stepping out in his own, on his own, to exercise revenge so he goes on to the next place Penuel he asked them the same question and they reject him as well that's 0 for 2 now with Gideon approaching people asking will you help me will you feed my men they say no as well in verse 9 Gideon's response is and he said to the men of Penuel 
When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So Gideon moves on from those places, but he doesn't forget, as we're going to find out later. And he takes his 300 men, and we're told in verse 13 that the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunia, are captured, and the army of the Midianites is thrown into a panic. And you need to remember this, because at this point in the text, instead of Gideon stopping to give God praise for their defeat over the Midianites, here's what we read in verses 13 through 17. And I want to read it because I want you to feel the force of the narrative at this point. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth, and he questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunia, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunia already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. This is not God's judgment for the disobedience of the people of Sukkoth and Penuel. This is Gideon's revenge on display. He has taken things into his own hands at this point. When we allow human nature to take over in our hearts, this is what human beings are capable of doing. But this is just the beginning, unfortunately, of his revenge tour. Look with me at verses 18 to 21. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunia, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunia said, rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunia, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. The key part of that whole passage is when it says, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. Gideon wants to kill these two kings, not because God is telling him to do it, but because they killed his brothers. He's seeking revenge. And like a true coward, instead of doing it himself, he asks his son to do it. And his son refuses. And it is only after that that Gideon steps up and kills these men. Why does this matter? Brothers and sisters in Christ in the room, hear me very closely. Revenge 
is a dirty, dirty game. Revenge leads to all sorts of sins. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, hatred, pride, just to name a few. I'm not saying everything that happens to us in our lives is fair or right, but revenge is never right. God is the one who is completely in control. If Jesus himself can hang on a wooden cross and ask his father to forgive the very people that put him on that cross, who are responsible for his crucifixion and his death, then certainly we can refrain in our own hearts from revenge. And in our world today, it is so easy to pop off at the mouth on Twitter, on Facebook, with a blog post, but the church of Jesus Christ does not win when its people behave that way. It loses. We should be people that can stand up above the fray. If you have the righteousness of Christ in you, brothers and sisters, you've already won. You don't need any more victories. You don't have to get the last word. Jesus himself got the last words when he said, it is finished. Rest in his identity today. Rest in that identity. We don't have to win every battle. Gideon's problem in this passage was that he tried to take revenge into his own hands. He wanted the power. He wanted control. He wanted the feeling of sticking it to them. And that is not what God desired for him to do. God is the one who will right every wrong. He is the God of justice. We trust in his plan and we let him work according to how he sees fit. Number three, we see Gideon as a king. Now, this is technically not true. Gideon's not a king. He's a judge. But what you're going to see as we work our way through this part of the passage is that so many of the things that Gideon does reflected as if he was a king. And the author is trying to communicate to that. But the bigger question is, in verse 22 of chapter 8, why do the men of Israel ask Gideon and his sons to rule over them? Why would they want to do that? After all that God has done for them up to this point, and they quickly look to another man for leadership instead of a holy and righteous God. Why would the people of Israel do that? The same reason that we as human beings crave human leadership instead of divine leadership. All human beings want healthy and good leadership. If you watch sports, whether the coach is successful or not successful, outside of a hand select full of or a, a select number of coaches, most sports franchises change their coaches every two to three years. They always think that somebody new is going to come in and fix everything. The front office thinks it, the players think it, the fans think it, and outside of a select coach in this state, nobody has the shelf life of that one coach. We always think that if we can just get somebody new in, they'll turn the ship and everything will be back to normal. And that's exactly what the Israelites thought. God, he had his day. Yes, he delivered us from the Red Sea, but, you know, lately things have not been going well. Look at all that Gideon has done for us. Let's make 
him king. This happens in the nation of Israel. It happens with sports franchises. And it happens in churches too. Every church is tempted with this thought. Let's just do whatever works to get people in the building. And that is a lie of the enemy. We don't just do whatever gets people in the building. Let me read to you how the early church dealt with trying to get people into the building. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Yawn. There's nothing flashy about that. And yet, go and read the rest of the book of Acts and see what God does in his church. How he takes the church from a small select group of people in Jerusalem and he scatters it all over the Roman Empire. And he does it in this way. Because the church was devoted to the word of God. They were devoted to relationships with each other. And they were devoted to communion and baptism and prayer. This is what we call the ordinary means of grace. This is how God grows his church. Always remember this statement, which is not original to me, but I wits that it was. What you attract them with is what you attract them to. Let that sink in for a moment. What you attract them with is what you attract them to. So if people are attracted to a church because of a preacher, then what happens when that preacher dies? If people are attracted to a church because of the music, what happens when the music isn't what they want it to be one week or two weeks or for multiple years? If people are attracted to a specific event or a specific ministry or a specific program, what happens when that ministry, that event, that program goes away? So what we're going to do here is attract people to the only thing that can truly keep them, the Word of God. That is what changes hearts. You want people to come to this church, attract them with the Bible. Don't attract them with me or read or any program that we do. That's why we want to let the Word be the center of everything that we do. Because if we attract them with the Word of God, we'll attract them to the only thing that can ensure their salvation and help them grow in Christ. Nothing else provides salvation and spiritual growth outside of the Word of God. It begins and it ends with that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't try to have good preaching or good music. But none of those things ultimately save or mature people. The Word of God is the only thing that does that. And the Israelites were guilty in this passage of thinking that Gideon and his sons were the future for them. That is how we will grow. That is how we will achieve power and prestige when it was Yahweh all along who had saved them from every battle they had ever fought. Now, in Gideon's defense, in verse 23, he actually declines their offer to rule over them. But his words ultimately don't match his actions. Look at verses 24 to 27. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Now, this is after he has rejected ruling over them. 
every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Because besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it in his city in Afra, and all Israel poured after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now, the text tells us Gideon rejected ruling over them, But unfortunately, all of his actions speak the opposite. Daniel Block, in his commentary, points out all of the various ways in what I just read that Gideon was functionally acting like a king. Number one, he requests gifts of gold from the people, which is a sign that they are basically his servants. Number two, he retained, the text tells us, the crescent ornaments, the pendants, and purple garments that were worn by the kings of Midian. These were all signs of royalty. Number three, he crafted an ephod and placed it in his city, assuming that he is now a sponsor of that cult. And then number four, in attracting the Israelites from all over Israel to come to Aphra, Gideon is establishing a capital. And then number five, we're told in verse 27, that this ephod was a snare to Gideon and his family. And that phrase, his family, carries with it dynastic overtones. Gideon might have explicitly said, I'm not ruling over you, but his actions actually say the opposite. Now, you might be thinking, well, why is it really a big deal that Gideon did this? I mean, the people needed leadership They needed a king, except if Gideon and the Israelites had been in their Bibles more, they would have realized that God already addressed this very issue in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. In those passages, Moses lays out exactly how God wanted a kingship to look when it came time for them to have a king. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but just a few of them. Deuteronomy 17, 14, 15, and 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. So Gideon violated the law in these specific ways. Number one, God never chose him to be king. Number two, we know from verse 30 that he had many wives. And then number three, he acquired excessive gold to form an idol for the people. So Israel's request for Gideon to be their king proves that while they needed leadership, they were looking for it in all of the wrong places. And we're told in verse 31 that Gideon had a concubine in Shechem, 
which is basically meaning he had a Canaanite woman. And that violates another one of God's laws from Deuteronomy chapter 7 when he says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Gideon is in all sorts of disobedience right now. He is building a kingdom for himself. He is acquiring concubines. He is constructing idols. Now, what are the consequences for Israel as a result of Gideon's behavior? Look at verse 32. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Now, the tragic end to this chapter is not that Gideon dies. Everyone dies. You're going to die. I'm going to die. That's a part of life. We get that. What's tragic about this chapter and the end of the Gideon saga, if you will, is verse 33. As soon, as soon, circle it, underline it, highlight it, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals, and made Baal bereath their God. What's the author of Judges trying to tell us here? It shows us that the people all along were simply relying on Gideon to be their God, rather than God himself. The people, like we said earlier, they were craving leadership, but they were looking for it in all of the wrong places. And verses 34 and 35 are quite the indictment on the people of Israel. Here's what it says. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. The people not only forgot about Yahweh, which is a common occurrence that we read about throughout the Old Testament, they also forgot about Gideon as soon as he passed. And we as human beings are selfish, probably more than any other of God's creatures. You see, it didn't matter how much Gideon ultimately did for Israel. As soon as he passed away, they were on to the next God. That's a reality for a lot of us actually. Very few of us will have any impact whatsoever outside of one generation, two generation, three generations at the most. More than likely, not to hurt anyone's feelings, none of us will be remembered 300 years from now. So the question becomes, where should we focus our time and our energy? Who is the only one who can sustain all of eternity with his good works that he has done for his people. You know, when I die one day, some of you might mourn for a day, a week, a month, 60 seconds. Some of you might rejoice. But at the most, my family will be upset maybe for six months to a year, but eventually, guess what they'll do? Even though they love me, they'll move on with life. They'll miss me. They might be sad from time to time. 
but they'll move on. This is what human beings do unless we put our focus on the one who lasts forever, the one who is eternal. If you want to leave a legacy in your life, then leave one that points people to Christ. Let me show you how this plays itself out. Many of you know of the early church father, Augustine. Augustine's one of the most well-known early church fathers, very famous for his books like The City of God and his Confessions. And when Augustine moved to Milan, he came across a bishop in the town where he was teaching rhetoric by the name of Ambrose. And here's what Augustine says in his book, The Confessions, about Ambrose. This is before Augustine is converted, by the way. Here's what he says. I heard him indeed every Lord's day rightly dividing the word of truth among the people. Now Ambrose had someone who left a legacy in his life. And Augustine writes this about the man who invested in Ambrose. I went therefore to Simplicianus, the spiritual father of Ambrose, whom Ambrose truly loved as a father. So stay with me here. Augustine, influenced by Ambrose. Ambrose, influenced by Simplicianus. But the story doesn't stop there. Augustine went to meet with Simplicianus, and he pointed him to another man, Victorinus. And here's what Augustine writes about Victorinus. And I cannot refrain from repeating what he told me about him, for it contains a glorious proof of your grace, which ought to be confessed to you, how that old man, most learned, most skilled in all of the liberal arts, who had read, criticized, and explained so many of the writings of the philosophers, the teacher of so many noble senators, one who, as a mark of this distinguished service in office, had both merited and obtained a statue in the Roman Forum, Despite all this, Augustine says, he did not blush to become a child of Christ, a babe at your font, bowing his neck to the yoke of humility and submitting his forehead to the ignominy of the cross. Now, I know I've lost you, but stay with me for a moment. What we see here is that these men left the legacy in the early days of the church, not because of their teachings, but because of Christ working through them. So move on in church history. So you have Augustine, you have Ambrose, you have Simplicianus, you have Victorinus, and then the church continues to grow, it continues to spread, and then during the Reformation, here's what we read from John Calvin. Augustine is so holy within me that if I wish to write a confession of my faith, I could do so with all fullness and satisfaction to myself out of his writings. Calvin, influenced greatly by Augustine. Martin Luther read everything that Augustine ever wrote. And the rest is now history. Jonathan Edwards influenced by John Calvin, Tim Keller, influenced by Jonathan Edwards, and way down here, this speck of nothing, Taylor Rutland, influenced by Tim Keller. 
And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And what I want you to walk away realizing is none of these names actually matter. It's the name that they promoted that matters. It's Jesus Christ that makes these men relevant. The goal of our lives, brothers and sisters, is to make Jesus known. That's the goal. We're not going to be remembered more than likely for almost anything else we do. But the things that you do that focus on the name of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his mission in the world, that will be remembered. That will not burn up in the fire. And the reason that it's possible for people like you and me to leave a legacy is because Jesus is still alive today. Gideon, dead and gone. Legacy, tarnished. But because Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, his legacy is eternal. So we repent of our sin. We trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And we leave a legacy for the next generation. Not because of anything that we've done, but what Christ has done through us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. God, even though Gideon does not end on a good note, we trust that this story was in your word to teach us about what is most important. God, none of us need to desire to be king because you are king. We have a king, and we want to point people to you. Father, forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of our arrogance. Forgive us when we try to take things into our own hands instead of submitting to your leadership. Humble us. Guide our steps. Show us how we need to live our lives. If there are any here today that are not in Christ, I pray that they would repent of their sin, believe in the gospel. Is it costly to follow you? Yes, it's costly, but it is worth it. I pray that you would move in people's hearts today. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.